Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Dr. Liz Jackson. It's a joy to have you Dr. Liz. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, so let's begin with your story. Tell us about yourself. How did you come to know Jesus? Yeah, this is it's great that I I love that you begin with this question. So, I grew up in a Christian family. Um my parents were actually in ministry. So, um I did become a Christian at a pretty young age. Um I don't know if I could tell you the exact age, probably somewhere around age 8. Um but I, you know, I I think I identify a lot with the verse that says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling um because god works in us and i do think you know at a certain point i did sort of become a christian but i've definitely seen my faith grow throughout my life and and i see it very much as a process um and so i think you know one big turning point for me was in um high school i was involved in a lot of mission trips so i went on a couple mission trips both to a couple different countries in Africa and also in Mexico and those I think were big turning points for me my faith became a lot more real to me I think especially as I was younger god was more of an explanation of where the universe came from um I was maybe not surprisingly a, a philosophical kid I had lots of questions so god kind of explained and answered some of those questions and then I think through these mission trips in high school God also became someone that was more involved in my day-to-day life and someone I could uh pray to and depend on and and that kind of thing. So I think that was one sort of big turning point in my faith and then another big turning point for me I think was in college. Um and I guess well in some ways it was good in some ways it was hard. I struggled with doubt quite a bit. Um doubting whether God existed or whether Christianity was true. Um and one reason I think it was hard was because Um a lot of my philosophy professors I went to Kansas State University the professors there they they were not Christians most of them I I did have one one or two that were um but I also went to a smaller Christian school so I actually did um degrees at two different universities and some of the professors I had at this Christian school uh they they claimed to be Christian but I think they were sort of on a path of actually deconverting this one professor in particular when i was taking his classes it was clear that he was very seriously doubting his faith um and then after i graduated he actually left the faith and um no longer called himself a christian and i think i mean it was that and then also combined with just lots of questions that i had about what do we say about difficult passages in the bible how do we make sense of the trinity what do we say about the problem of evil we might talk more about the problem of evil later um so you know i think it was those two things combined that really caused a lot of doubt in me and part of the reason that i wanted to be a professor and i decided to kind of go to grad school and then try to uh get a job teaching was I wanted to be a Christian professor that was there for students and could help walk them through doubts. And that doesn't mean we ignore the doubts or just don't, you know, say like just don't think about that and just have faith. Um but help walk them through and think them through these issues and you know some of them I'm still even thinking through myself. I don't have all the answers, but I think having genuine Christian professors is really really important for students. and so um that was something that was hard in my journey but 
I hope that I can, you know, be there for other people. Mm. Wow, that's wonderful to hear that uh, since you were born in a Christian family, but still when you were growing up, you had really uh, questions about your faith, about Christianity, but uh, gradually God uh, answered your questions through different people and through your experiences. So as you were talking about your uh, doubts that, uh, that uh, you know, does God exist or not? And, and on the other hand, humans call themselves rational beings, right? That we are rational beings. Both atheists and theists justify their beliefs as rational. But at the same time, they, uh, they call one another irrational, right? Mm -hmm. If I believe in God, they would, atheists would say, oh, it is irrational to believe in God. So I want to mm -hmm. ask you, is it irrational to believe in God? Yeah, I think definitely not. And a lot of my work has actually sort of concerned this question. Um, basically, looking at different arguments for and against the rationality of religious belief and then the rationality of religious commitment, kind of like you said. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of things to say here. The first thing that I, I think is really important to note is that I actually think not only is it not irrational to believe in God, but I actually don't even think you have to necessarily be able to cite off a bunch of arguments for God's existence in order for belief in God to be rational. So to kind of argue for this, what I want to do is step back a little bit and look at two of the main theories in epistemology about rationality or what's sometimes called justification. So a lot of epistemologists use justification and rationality uh, similarly, basically what it means is it's something you should believe, something that it's good to believe, maybe something that's kind of like you're on the way to knowing, you're on this path to knowledge. Um, so that's, that's what's known as justification or rationality. And in epistemology, there's sort of two main theories or camps. And what I want to try to do is show that on either camp, belief in God can be rational. Okay. So the first camp is what's known as internalism, and the most common version of internalism is what's called evidentialism. Okay, so what this view says is says, what is rational or justified for you to believe depends on your evidence. So you should believe things that are supported by your evidence. You should follow the evidence where it leads. And it's called internalism because in most cases, your evidence is something that you're aware of, right? So if I look outside and see a tree out there, I have evidence that there's a tree. And I'm you know, aware that I perceive the tree, and then on that basis, I believe that there's a tree. So doing that, seeing a tree outside and believing there's a tree, according to evidentialism, would be justified or rational. Okay, so here's one thing that's really, really important to note about evidentialism. And that's that a lot of things count as evidence. We should have an expansive view of what we count as evidence. It's easy to think, well, when you think about evidence, you might think about something like a fingerprint on a gun uh, from a crime scene. And that might give you evidence about who committed the crime. And yes, I think that's evidence. I also think doing a scientific experiment, that might be something else that naturally comes to mind when you're thinking about what counts as evidence. Um, but those aren't the only sorts of things that count as evidence. Those are what's known as um, like empirical evidence, which is evidence of things you can see and touch, things in the world. Scientific evidence is, is a big one of those. But it's also worth noting that lots of other things count as evidence as well. So if you tell me 
um, that you had eggs for breakfast this morning. I have evidence you had eggs for breakfast this morning, even though I didn't actually see you eat breakfast. Um, assuming I don't have a reason to think, you know, you're lying to me or you're confused. We normally take testimony at face value, and I think that's perfectly rational. So testimony is a super important, important source of evidence. Also, experiences count as evidence. Um, you know, it might not be this hard evidence of doing a scientific experiment, but if you experience pain, that's good evidence that you're in pain. Um, if I experience or perceive a tree outside, like we talked about, that's good evidence that there's a tree. And so we don't just count, you know, these scientific studies or whatever as evidence, but there's quite a few different sources of evidence um, and including intuitions. Intuitions are evidence as well. So if I, if it seems wrong to me to um, torture a puppy, that's evidence that torturing a puppy is wrong. And so once we see that we have this expansive conception of evidence, um, I think we can get the result that it's it's rational to believe in God because we have lots of different sources of evidence for the existence of God. So arguments for God's existence are a source of evidence. Arguments are a good source of evidence uh, in a lot of fields, right? Um, but we do have arguments for God's existence, and some of them I think are kind of are interesting and, and good arguments, right? But also, remember, testimony is evidence. So testimony from other people, testimony from religious leaders, um, testimony from maybe important historical figures in the faith. Those all, that all counts as evidence. Um, experiences also count as evidence. So someone's experiences of God could justify them to believe that there's a God. So I think this shows that on this internalist or evidentialist picture, especially when we realize that a lot of things count as evidence, not just a fingerprint on a gun or a scientific study, uh, we can see that it is rational to believe in God. Okay, so that's one theory. Do you want me to, do you want to say something or should I move on to the other theory? Yeah, yeah, please explain. Okay, great. Okay, so the first theory was evidentialism, which is a version of internalism. Now let's talk about externalism. So externalism is the view that when a belief is rational, that's because of the way your, your mind or your brain is functioning. Um, there's two main versions of it. So on one, it says a belief is rational when it's produced by a reliable process. And then another version of it says that a belief is rational when it's produced by a process that's functioning properly. So um, these, are, these are known as uh, reliableism and proper functionalism, the two main versions of externalism. And the reason it's called externalism is because it's more about is your, your mind or your brain functioning the right way than it is about whether you have a piece of evidence that you can access. And on this notion of justification or rationality, then I think belief in God is also justified. And there's a couple of you know, different reasons you can you know, give for this, but I'm gonna talk about Planiga's. Planiga is one of the most famous externalists and he also argued that belief in God can be rational. So I'll say a little bit about how um, Planiga argues for it. So Planiga argued, and this actually, this view traces back to, to Calvin and even Augustine, that we have this part of our minds and it's called the sensus divinitatis. It's kind of a, a big, big word, big phrase. That means the sense of the divine. And basically what it is, is it's part of our, our minds that's designed to form beliefs about God. So if I, let me give an example. 
see a, a beautiful sunset. And then I think, wow, there's a creator. Someone created this. Um, that would be my sense system in a Tatus functioning in me to produce that belief about God. Or if I sit, if I, um, maybe I am going on a, a mountain hike and I get lost and I'm stranded and I'm like, God, please help me. And I, I believe like there's a God that can help me. Again, my sense of divinitatis is causing me to believe that there's a God who, who can help me and help me find my way back, help me find my way back home. And so what these examples are supposed to show is that if planning is right, that there is this sense of divinitatis that functions in these certain ways to, to have us produce beliefs about God, um, then when that is reliable and functioning properly, we will believe in God. So what planning argues is that this is actually part of God's design plan, and that if God exists and God created us with this sensus divinitatis, then belief in God can be rational. So that's sort of Planning's way of arguing that from externalism, belief in God is rational. But what I think is, is sort of the, the overall picture lesson is that on the, both of the two main epistemological theories, uh, it can be rational to believe in God, and you don't necessarily have to give off a bunch of arguments for it. So you could think about maybe your grandma who goes to church every week and prays for you every night. And even if your grandma is not aware of the ontological and cosmological arguments, your grandma can still be rational to believe in God. Um, I want to say one more thing before I, before I conclude. And that's, um, I wanted to say something about faith, because I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about faith and the relationship between faith or faith in God and then rationality. Some people think faith is opposed to rationality or reason. And, and I've even heard people say faith is, is belief without evidence or faith is believing something you know isn't true. And I just think that is just not what faith is. That's the wrong definition of faith. And I'll tell you what I, a lot of my research actually involves faith. And here's, here's my view of what faith is. Faith is a commitment to someone or something that involves a belief-like state and a desire-like state. So let me, let me give an example or maybe two examples uh, to illustrate this really quick and then we can, then I'll wrap up my answer to this. Um, but let's say if I have faith that you're gonna win your upcoming basketball game, I have some kind of commitment to you and your team and I have some kind of belief-like state, I either believe you're gonna win or have high confidence that you're gonna win. And I also have some kind of desire like state. I want you to win. I think it would be a good thing if you won. So notice, I haven't said it's belief without evidence. I haven't said it's believing something that you don't know. Um, and I do think faith plays an important role in helping keep our commitments over time. So faith plays an important role in a religious commitment or in a marriage, or even you know maybe in a commitment to finish something for your job or finish a degree or uh, learn a new instrument. Faith plays a role in these commitments and sometimes can help keep us going even if we get some counter evidence. But that doesn't mean that faith is belief without evidence. And so I don't think we should define faith as this inherently irrational thing. And in fact, I think faith is often rational, um, especially when it meets meet certain conditions. And, you know, we can maybe talk more about that later. But yeah, so, so to sum up, it's not irrational to believe in God, um, given internalism. There's a good reason to think a lot of people that believe in God have evidence that God exists, and given externalism. 
Um, if you buy planning as argument, there's just census divinitatis. It's not irrational to believe in God. And then faith is not belief without evidence, but it's a commitment. So that's my answer. Wow, that's really wonderful to hear the way you uh, defined and uh, categorized two category in the epistemology, that internalism and externalism. And uh, in inter internalism, you said that uh, it is not necessary that uh, you need a scientific explanation for evidences. Sometimes it is, uh, it may be intentional uh, or maybe experiential. So, uh, and on the other hand, you uh, uh, explain the Platinga's theory, Alvin Platinga's theory of uh, uh, externalism. So that's wonderful to hear. And in the end, you justified uh, the faith. Uh, so usually people say that faith, uh, you know, religious people are blind faith. They have a blind faith, right? So, so how do you difference between uh, that those who call it superstition belief or the real belief? So how do you define such thing? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would just say I don't think faith is blind, at least. I mean, it depends on what you mean by blind, right? Uh, but faith yeah. isn't blind in the sense that you don't have evidence for it, right? Um, faith might get you through periods of doubt. Faith might help you continue in your commitments in light of counter evidence. I don't think it would be right to say that that means it's blind either, <laughs> right? Uh, mm. But so, you know, faith, faith helps us keep our commitment, right? Um, that doesn't mean faith is blind. That doesn't mean faith is belief without evidence. So I think that's just sort of based on a, a misunderstanding of what faith is. And I think another thing to note here, and something I've said before, is that faith is not just a religious thing. I mean, faith is important for everyone. Mm -hmm. We have faith in our family, faith in our friends. We have faith in uh, ideals that we aspire to. We might have faith in world peace. We might have faith in recycling. We might have faith in some politician, you know, so faith is, is something that is a part of our everyday lives, whether you're religious or not. Um, and I actually have a paper where I kind of try to give a long argument that any argument you can give that faith is irrational, either it's actually not irrational, maybe because you just have a way too narrow understanding of evidence or something like that. Or if you give an argument faith is irrational and it really shows that something's irrational, that's not something that religious believers actually have. So I think a lot of the arguments to show that we can have justified beliefs in morality or in um, you know, maybe assumptions that underlie science, beliefs about what's rational and irrational, if you wanna say those beliefs are justified, you can use the similar sort of reasoning to uh, justify religious belief as well. So I, I, I'm not, uh, I, I'm thinking, look, either faith is an irrational or I don't have a good reason to think religious believers actually have faith. Maybe if your definition is belief without evidence, I'll just say, okay, religious believers don't have faith if that's what you mean by faith. They maybe have something else that helps them keep their commitments, us keep our commitments over time, but lots of other people have that too. Hmm. Correct. Uh, that faith is required to keep the commitment, as you said, whether you're theist or atheist. So moving on to this, uh, that we just talked about the rationality of beliefs. Now let's talk about the evil, which both theist and uh, atheist experience, and they both the worldviews agree that evil exists, right? Both hmm. they, they can't deny, we can't deny. So how does theist view the problem of evil? Yeah, the problem of evil is a very, uh, it's a tough problem. It's, a, it's one of the best arguments for the conclusion that God doesn't exist. And it basically goes like this. 
um, there's if there's a, a God that's that's all good, God would want to prevent evil. Um, and if God is all powerful, then God could prevent evil. But because evil exists, uh, it's 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 puzzling. It seems like either God isn't all good or God isn't all powerful. And you know, in general, I think it is unclear to us why God would allow so much evil in the world, and especially evils that seem pointless. You know, maybe some evils. If you go to the gym and you get really sore and your arm hurts, well, it seems like that has a point. You know, it's helping you be healthier and lift more weight and all of that. But when we when it comes to pointless evil, um, it's really hard to see why God would allow them. And so, you know, there's been a number of responses to the problem of evil that have been given by um, theists and Christian philosophers. And uh, maybe I'm going to go through a couple of them and then kind of explain my favorite response to the problem of evil. Um, and so so I'll just try to go not too, too long. So the first, a very common one is the free will defense. This is one that's defended by Planaga, among others. And basically it says, look, God makes us, God lets us make genuine choices. We genuinely have free will. We have the ability to choose good and the ability to choose evil. That's what it means for free will to be morally significant. And there's something really good about having morally significant free will. Um, however, because this requires both the ability to choose good and the ability to choose evil, that at least explains why there's some of the evils in the world. They're brought about by free will. And um, some people, I think, and even Planago was maybe sympathetic to this, thinks that there's also spiritual beings like demons or the devil, and they have free will too. And that can explain things like natural evil. So there's tornadoes, there's hurricanes, floods, and it seems like you might think, how can the free will defense explain those? But maybe God is honoring the free will of these spiritual beings. Um, not everyone's going to agree with that, but you know, I'm just kind of laying out some of the options here. Um, a second response that people have given to the problem of evil is what's known as the soul-making theodicy. And John Hick gave this, um, among others. And this is basically the view that Evil is necessary for people to undergo, to undergo spiritual and character growth. And this growth ultimately makes people fit for communion with God. So you could think about a case where you maybe undergo a really serious illness like cancer, and that's evil. That's not, that's not, it's not a good thing in and of itself to have cancer. Um, but undergoing a really tough time like having cancer can ultimately make you more virtuous. It can give you virtues like perseverance and trust and make you closer with your friends and family. And, and ultimately it makes you grow as a person and makes you more fit for communion with God. So that's what's known as the soul-making theodicy. Um, Peter Van Inwagen has an interesting theodicy and it's what's called the natural laws theodicy, or at least that's what I'm calling it. Um, and so this one's a little bit harder to get the intuitive grasp of, but I'll try. Um, basically, the idea is that our world is governed by a series of natural laws, like gravity and like, uh, you know, at least the things that Newton described, but imperfectly. We can throw a ball and know it will go a certain amount. We can open a door and know that, you know, these various things will happen. And we need these natural laws so we can make decisions, we can act in a predictable way, we can build buildings, we can you know, do scientific experiments, all of that. But sometimes these natural laws 
they cause events that will harm individuals. And, and examples here would be the natural evils like we were talking about especially, but you could also include uh, things that humans do that because of a natural law harm someone else. And then Ben Inwagen argues that the, the evils that we experience, at least some of them are outweighed by the good of living in this world with predictable laws of nature. When, when we do something, there's a law of nature that then determines what will happen as a result of that action. Okay, I have three more and then I'm gonna kind of sum up and say, say the final conclusion. Um, so the fourth response to the problem evil, of evil is what's known as skeptical theism. So skeptical theism is the view that we don't always know all the reasons that God allows evil, but just because we can't tell you the reason doesn't mean that God doesn't have a good reason. And, you know, in my opinion, you can make this too skeptical, right? So I think there are certain cases, I think we, we do have certain kinds of moral knowledge and we shouldn't just say, I don't know any of God's reasons. I mean, presumably God's revealed God's self in, to us in certain ways. And so we don't want to be too skeptical with this. At the same time, I think it's important to have some epistemic humility and say, we don't have all the answers. We don't know all the reasons that God acts in certain ways. And so we might not be able to give you an explanation for every single bit of evil. Okay, so two more. Um, and these two are sort of uniquely Christian responses to the problem of evil. So the first is called the Felix Culpa theodicy. And Felix Culpa means, oh, happy sin. This is actually another theodicy that was defended by Plantinga. And Plantinga argues that, yes, there's sin and evil, but these are necessary for the Christian goods of incarnation and atonement. So the incarnation is um, God becoming a man in Jesus and Jesus living this perfect life and doing miracles and giving us all these great teachings. And then the atonement is, is Jesus's death on the cross, which paid the penalty for our sins, and then Jesus's resurrection from the dead. So Jesus, you know, th there's this very great good that Jesus took a human form and, and then died for us. And the fact that our world has the incarnation and the atonement makes our world very, very, very valuable. Um, but sin is necessary for these goods. The reason that Jesus became a man was to die for our sins. Um, and so we wouldn't necessarily need incarnation and atonement without sin. Um, but incarnation and atonement are such great goods that this outweighs those bads of sin and evil. Um, and then I think relatedly, the sixth thing I wanted to say was, I think the incarnation itself, the fact that God became man and entered into our limitations and entered into our suffering. And, and I mean, I think Jesus suffered on the cross in ways that we can't even imagine, honestly. Um, so, you know, and the Bible says that Jesus endured the pain and suffering for the joy set before him. And so I think this fact that Jesus became a man and and became human and, and, you know, experienced the pain and suffering that we experience, um, gives, Jesus can empathize with us. And Jesus knows what it's like to go through the difficult times and go through suffering. And so I think this helps us. Um, the fact that the, the incarnation happened, I think helps with the problem of evil and helps gives us, give us hope when we're going through really difficult times to know that there's a joy set before us as well. Okay. 
So you might have thought that was a lot. Let me just, I'll go through all six very quickly. The free will defense, the soul-making theodicy, the natural laws theodicy, skeptical theism, O Felix culpa, which is O happy sin, and then the incarnation itself. So I mentioned all six of these because I think that the best response to the problem of evil is some kind of cumulative case response. So I think all six of these responses, but even others too that, that I just didn't have time to mention here, I think what we should do is we should combine them together and use all of them to help us best understand why God allows evil. Um, I like this response because I think some people try to put all their eggs in one basket and say, you know, we just talk about the free will defense. And like, I mean, yeah, I think free will is important and it's good, but it's not clear that free will by itself is good enough to outweigh all the evils in the world. Um, you might also like really like skeptical theism and say, well, we just don't know the reasons that God allows evils. But I think that response, I'm worried that leads to too much skepticism. But if we kind of add all these responses together, I think we can get a much stronger response. And then the evils that some responses might fail to explain, I think other responses might explain better. And then like we talked about with skeptical theism, there might be some that we don't know God's reason. So that's kind of, I think, the best response to the problem of evil. Um, and then I wanted to say one last thing, which is that I think as Christians, we should not dismiss things like the problem of evil. And we should take arguments that God doesn't exist very seriously and wrestle with them. And I've heard people say, oh, I'm just not going to worry about the problem of evil because I have faith. So this relates to our earlier conversation about what faith is. Um, faith is a commitment, and it's an informed commitment. Remember, it, it involves a belief-like state. And so I think, look, we're not always going to be in a position of 100% certainty that God exists. There are challenges to our faith. Evil is an important challenge to our faith. And I think one thing that I've said before that is, is really important is that having a firm commitment to God is more important than always being 100% certain that God exists. Um, I think what, what I want to encourage people to do is embrace your doubts and, and seek the truth. Doubt your doubts, right? Uh, don't like, get carried away with your doubts. But also, I think, given an understanding of the way that faith can help us continue in our commitments, even when we get counter evidence, that it lets us take the problem of evil very seriously, but still realize it's totally rational for me to continue in this commitment to God. So that, that was something I kind of wanted to add as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really a good uh, uh, explanation on the theistic view uh, on the problem of evil that, as you mentioned, that all six responses combined together actually uh, to give you the, uh, the good view that how can you see the evil. And, uh, but I want, I, I, I really liked all these six uh, responses like free will defense or uh, different types of theodicy you mentioned. Uh, I would like you to turn on the volume on the problem of uh, the natural evil, like in the form of disasters, floods, as we see the hundreds and thousands of people are dying on this. So how do you uh, see a natural evil? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think natural evil poses a really real challenge. Um, and I, I do think some of the responses that I mentioned can help with it. Um, so, you know, like one example I gave was 
uh, if there's spiritual beings that have free will and they have some kind of uh, reign over certain physical occurrences that happen, such as, uh, you know, tornadoes or hurricanes or whatever, then their free will, God respecting their free will might explain some of the evils. Um, I think also the natural law theodicy, having the value of these natural laws, uh, that could also explain some of the natural evils. But I also think uh, part of what I'm going to say is going to involve skeptical theism. I don't know all the answers, and I, I don't know that I can give a full answer for why God allows uh, all the natural evils that we see. And um, that doesn't mean they're not very bad in some important sense. But but yeah, I, I do think that's a that's a really tricky question. And mm -hmm. so I don't I don't have all the answers. And I, I think as Christians, we shouldn't be afraid to say that we don't mm -hmm. want to go too skeptical again. But I don't have all the answers for why God allows natural evil. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So when it comes to the truth that uh, when it comes to the truth, then we often stuck with the subjectivity and objectivity of truth. Right. And uh, Christian claim with more certainty that Christianity is true. Uh, but in, in a sense, they are, isn't it subjective when you claim that Christianity is true because others are claiming that it's not true. So can we claim, uh, my question is, can we most certainly claim that Christianity is true? Yeah, I think this is a really important question because it gets at what is the nature of truth? What does it mean for something to be true? Um, and you hear people say this. Um, I'm imagining in India as well, but in the US, they'll say that's true for me, but not true for you. You know, trying to maybe they're trying to uh, you know make amends or, or wave their white flag with someone or something, right? Um, but I think we can absolutely claim that Christianity is true. And when we understand what truth is, I think it, it makes more sense. So what it means for something to be true is it means that it corresponds to the world. So if it's true that snow is white, that means that in the world, snow is white. <laughs> the world is such that snow is white. So when we say this is true, what we're saying is this is a claim about the world. The world is this way. I actually have um, a YouTube channel and I have a video on the nature of truth and I talk more about this there. So you can go, people can go look at that if they want more because I'm not going to go into everything there. Um, and so, so I think we can absolutely claim that Christianity is true. And I think one really important distinction that people sometimes miss is that there's a difference between true beliefs and rational beliefs, okay? So we talked earlier about whether it can be rational to believe in God. That's different than uh, whether something's true or false is different than whether something's rational or irrational. So let's say we disagree um, on some question, like whether it will rain tomorrow or something, right? Um, maybe the maybe we could both be rational. Uh, maybe you have different evidence than I do, or maybe it's really unclear based on our evidence whether it will rain tomorrow. But if you believe it's going to rain, and I believe it's not going to rain, then only one of our beliefs can be true. So when we claim that Christianity is true, what we're not saying is that all non-Christians are irrational. <laughs> We're not saying they can't have evidence for that position or it can't be, you know, it can't be rational for them to believe it, but we are saying that they have a false belief. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's okay, right? There are certain things that are false. If I believe that one plus one equals three, I have a false belief. It's not true for me because I believe it. No, I just have a false belief. Um, if I believe the earth is flat, 
I have a false belief, right? And so I think we're, we're scared to tell other people they have false beliefs, but just that, that's what it is to believe something. So if, just by believing something, believing something is saying that this thing is true. And so if someone disagrees with you, what it would follow is that their belief is false. Again, that doesn't necessarily mean they're irrational, right? It just means that your belief is true and their belief is false. So, you know, I don't see any issues with claiming that Christianity is true, especially if we clarify what we mean by that. Um, things can't be true for me, but not true for you. That's just not how truth works because there's one world. There's not two worlds. And then all the atheists are in a world where God doesn't exist and all the theists are in a world where God does exist. No, no, no. Like either God exists or God doesn't exist. And you can say that Christianity is true. And in fact, when you say you believe Christianity, that's actually what you're saying. You're saying, I'm claiming that Christianity is true. So yeah, I think we can claim that Christianity is true. And we can do that without saying all of our opponents are irrational. Yeah, that's a very good distinction that when you claim the Christianity true, that doesn't mean that we are uh, saying that other are irrational. Right? Yeah. Yeah. For because, sure. Yeah. Uh, so, because the Christ, uh, Christianity, when we claim Christianity is true, that that is based on, as you said, the evidences, you know, internal as evidences, external testimonies, and uh, uh, different kinds of non-secular evidences points to Christianity that all this happened, Jesus' resurrection has happened. So that's wonderful to hear. And uh, uh, I want to know about your book that you are writing. I think this is your first book, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. it is. So what is inside your first book, Applied Ethics and Impartial uh, Introduction? Yeah, so this book um, actually departs a little bit from some of the stuff we've been talking about. It's not actually about philosophy of religion, um, but it's about sort of these practical ethical questions. And a lot of ones are ones that a lot of people have probably thought about and wondered about. Um, so we actually cover six different topics. So we cover abortion, um, sort of the pro-life versus pro-choice debate. We cover animal rights, including whether sort of our treatment of animals in farms is, is permissible. Um, and then also the question, what about an animal who's treated really well during their life? Is it okay to kill that animal to eat it for food? Um, then third topic is environmental ethics. So kind of questions about ethics in the environment. So what are our duties to future generations? Maybe when it comes to, you know, pollution or taking care of the earth, that kind of question. Um, also, what about wild animals? There's animals that we have in farms, but should we ever interfere in the wild? Or what do we say about um, wild animals hunting, that kind of thing? Okay, so that's third topic. Fourth topic is poverty and charity. So is giving money to charity or giving money to the poor, is it a moral obligation? Is it something we have to do and it's wrong if we don't give money to charity? Is it, this is a big philosophy word, super erogatory? So super erogatory means it goes above and beyond our moral duties. Like you could think of like Superman or something, right? Um, but super erogatory uh, means it's a good thing to do, but it's not an obligation that we have. It's just a, ni a nice thing. It goes above and beyond. Um, or some people have actually even argued that giving to charity is morally wrong if it contributes to overpopulation or something. I don't think that's their true view, but we talk about those arguments. Uh, the fifth topic is punishment. So we talk about whether punishment is justified, different justifications for punishment, 
and then maybe reasons you might think punishment actually isn't justified. That's our fifth topic. And then our sixth topic is disability. So we look at the question of whether disabilities are something that automatically make you worse off, or are they something that makes you different? Maybe you're physically abnormal if you're disabled, but not always automatically a bad thing. Okay, so that's the six topics, abortion, animal rights, environmental ethics, poverty, charity, punishment, and disability. And in the book, our goal actually isn't to argue for one position or another. But what we want to do is give people an overview of the philosophical debates. And this is especially for people who maybe don't want to go spend their time reading a bunch of philosophy journal articles, but they're interested in these issues and want to know, like, what are philosophers saying about these issues? And so we try to make it accessible. Um, we use arguments that are written in premise conclusion form, so you can see the reasoning Here's the premises, the support for the conclusion, and then here's the conclusion. So you can see the reasoning very clearly. And then we also include questions for further reflection if you want to you know, think more about certain issues that a certain argument brings up. And then further reading if you're wanting to read more about a certain topic. So that's the book. And I should also say it's actually co-authored. So there's four of us authors. Um, so I'm one of the authors, and then I I wrote it with three other friends. So some of, we some of us specialized on certain specific topics, uh, but we all wrote it together. Wow, that's wow. I'm uh, looking at the content. It really looks that I should read too. <laughs> so looking forward to it. That you are really uh, covering a very uh, genuine and the most cultural uh, topics like abortion, charity, and other uh, thing, disabilities. So I hope you and I uh, give you uh, uh, all the best to you, to your writings. So moving on to the last question, which I usually ask to every guest that uh, about the young Christian, the young people like me and others, those who are uh, in the faith, they are growing in Christianity. So what advice would you give to the young Christian, those who are influenced in, the, in this internet age, those who are influenced by other worldviews and cultures and philosophies? So what advice would you give? Yeah, I have a lot of things I want to say. I'll try to keep it brief. Um, okay, so I think one of the biggest things that people don't always realize, but is really, really important, is that there are smart Christian academics that love Jesus and take the Bible seriously and, and want to know God and pursue God and are real genuine Christians. Um, I think a lot of people, and especially in philosophy, but in science and in other fields as well, they have this stereotype that if you're an academic, if you're a scientist or a philosopher, then you're automatically an atheist. And I just hate that. I hate that stereotype. Uh, it's not true at all. And there's a lot of Christian philosophers that are not only practicing Christians, but they're defending Christianity in good philosophy journals. Um, and one thing that I think is sad is that these people aren't always uh, on YouTube. <laughs> They're not always, that's one reason I try to do a lot of stuff on YouTube, because I think it's really important for people to realize that there are Christian philosophers that um, are thinking about these questions from a Christian perspective. And like I said, genuinely following Jesus, even if people aren't always aware of them or seeing them on places like YouTube. So that's one thing I just think is, is really important to note. Um, so that was, I guess, one point. Um, and then a second point that I think is a really big problem and something that I see kind of all over social media and something I actually talk to my students about a lot 
is learning to disagree with people and learning to disagree with people really well. And so I think my second piece of advice was like, try to disagree better, try to try to disagree well. Um, and I think there's a few maybe specific things people can do here. Uh, one thing is you shouldn't accept every argument just because you agree with the argument's conclusion. So it's okay to admit there's bad arguments for a conclusion that you agree with. Um, so that's one thing. Um, a second thing is that you should admit when someone you disagree with makes a good point or has a good argument. Um, in a lot of these controversial debates about politics, morality, and religion, there are good arguments on both sides. And you know, even as Christians, even as strong, committed Christians, we can say the problem of evil is a good argument. It's a challenging argument. Um, and often when an issue is controversial, that's because there is these good arguments on both sides. And so if your opponent makes a good point, I think you should tell them that. You should say, that's a good point. You can even say, I need to think more about the best answer to that. So you don't have to have all the answers right away. Um, and then also on this, I think it's easy to make our focus beyond winning a debate or whose side are you on? Are you on my side or their side? And I think we're just getting so pulled apart by this polarization, whether it's political or religious or something else. And I feel like what we need to do is we need to step back and say, what is our goal? Our goal is not to win a debate, but our goal is to find the truth. And so even though there's these two people on opposite sides, what I want us to do is come together and try to find the truth together, try to learn from each other and realize that ultimately we're actually in some sense on the same side, the side of trying to find the truth. And, you know, of course, as Christians, we think that truth is ultimately found in Jesus, but we can unite with our opponents and that we're saying we're both interested in truth and we both want to learn from each other and grow from each other. So I think that's uh, another really important thing kind of in the internet age and in this age of polarization to keep in mind. Um, and then another thing I wanted to say is don't believe everything that you read online or hear on YouTube. Um, <laughs> I think a huge problem is that a lot of the big YouTube channels are unfortunately just not the most informed scholars that are doing the best work. And this kind of relates to the first thing I was saying where there's like real Christian philosophers doing this awesome work and they're publishing in these journals. Um, but a lot of the people that you read on YouTube, they're not necessarily, um, well, I mean, it's one thing that they aren't these people with PhDs doing these publications, but often they're not even reading those people or even aware of those people. Um, and I think this is a big problem. And so I think, you know, you really need to look at the sources that you're uh, reading or watching, whether it's a blog or YouTube or something else, and say, you know, does this person have a PhD? Are they producing, uh, pursuing a PhD? Or are they employed by a, a credible university? Or are they citing people that do? Are they interacting with people that do? Are the people that they're having on their channel or the sources that they're citing or reading those kinds of things? Because anyone can post anything on the internet, right? People can post controversial things that even sound interesting. Um, it's really easy to make a blog or a YouTube channel. Um, and some people can, you can even publish a book if you have the right connections or you're self-publishing or whatever. But I don't think that automatically means that it's worth listening to that person or taking them seriously. So I just think in general, be careful who you listen to. There's a ton of stuff on the internet. And so just be careful. Um, I want to say one last thing. 
which is this. Um, I think throughout a lot of my life, I struggled with pursuing God with my heart versus pursuing God with my head. And I often throughout a lot of my life saw those as separate things or it's almost something I had to pick between. Uh, do I pursue God with my heart or pursue God with my head? And I actually think it was Jonathan Edwards. And one of the things Jonathan Edwards said was like, it's both. <laughs> it's not one or the other. You don't have to pick. Um, there's nothing wrong with having emotions towards God. There's nothing wrong. Like, I think it's easy, especially when you're more academically oriented or really into like philosophy and theology to kind of push emotions aside or not, or think they're, they don't lead us to the truth or something like that. But God gave us emotions for a reason. I think they're super important. And I think we should be pursuing God with both our, our head and our heart and not feel like we have to choose one or the other. And so I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned as a Christian. And I just want to encourage Christians also to not get get pulled too far in one direction or the other either. It's really easy for some people, I think, to get caught up in the head stuff and forget about the relationship part. But I also think there's it's equally dangerous to ignore arguments and evidence and just say, oh, I just have faith and, you know, not pay attention to the good reasons that we have as Christians to believe the Bible and believe that Christianity is true. We're called to give, give a defense uh, for the hope that's in us. So I think it's a both and, and I think you also don't want to get too, pulled too far one way or the other. Oh, I think you're muted. Yeah, so that's a very <laughs> valuable advice that, uh, um, um, that you should uh, first, if you are dealing with some doubts, then they are really a smart intellectual Christians and philosophers or scientists, those who are also have dealt already with such questions. So you may look out to them and also that you should not believe whatever is, is on the internet. You have to discern also, right? And also um, you mentioned from your story, uh, from your experience that the uh, follow with the heart or follow with the head. And I think both goes along. So thank you so much, Dr. Liz, for this valuable advice. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, and I, I loved hearing you. I know the time didn't allow us to explain such big questions of life that I asked. Mm -hmm. They demand more time, but uh, you tried your best. And uh, I'm, I was blessed hearing such uh, good new information and good insights. So thank you so much once again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And like you said, I know we didn't have time to get into everything, but if people want to hear more or hear more about my work, um, my website is liz-jackson.com. Um, and I also have a YouTube channel. I think if you just search Liz Jackson or maybe Liz Jackson philosophy, you should be able to find it. So if yeah. you, if you want to hear more, this was a, a shorter interview with lots of big topics. Uh, you should check those out. Yeah. So I'll give the link, uh, descript, uh, link in the description box, her website and her YouTube channel. So you guys may look at, uh, look at it. So thank you once again, ma'am. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun.